the Mac Observer's Mac Geek Gab number 365 premium for Thursday, November 17th, 2011. Good readings, folks, and welcome to this, the second premium show of the month of November the year 2011 there's a lot of new listeners that we'd like to uh, new premium members that we'd like to say welcome to a lot of uh, old members who just renewed that we would like to say welcome to and uh, and everyone else who's just in the middle of their subscription we'd like to say welcome to so welcome everyone here from Durham, new hampshire i'm dave hamilton and welcome to my good friend john braun here in fairfield connecticut that's john f braun to the rest of you correct <laughs> um so I've got, uh, it's been a, it's been an interesting week for me, John. While I was out, I, I, I'll start this story by saying that what's today, Thursday, yesterday morning, between the time that my son woke up and the time that we had to get up and go get breakfast uh, for him before he got off to school, we wrote our together, our first iPhone app and deployed it. Uh, well, almost deployed it to an iPhone. We deployed it, uh, in, in about 10 minutes once he got home from school. And uh, and you may be wondering how in the world did you do that in such a short period of time? And the it wasn't an- with Xcode, was it? It sure wasn't. Well, you have to use <laughs> Xcode at some part of the process, and and that's actually why we couldn't deploy it until he got home from school. But I'll I'll tell the I'll tell the story, and and it'll fill in these gaps. So uh, while I was out at Mac Tech, I had the opportunity to see Kevin Miller, the CEO of a company called RunRev at RunRev.com, demo. Uh, Live code, which is an app that they've had since like 1997. Uh, and recently in the last year, I think they added uh, the ability to build iOS apps with RunRev live code. And uh, and this app is awesome. I mean, it's a development environment and you can build pro stuff with it. This is, you know, just the, the fact. I mean, all we did was we built. Uh, it's a relatively simple hello world app. We we actually put a field out there and we put two buttons, one which would populate the field with, of course, the text hello world. And then another that would clear the uh, text from from that. But but what's cool about RunRev uh, live code, I, can't, I don't know why I keep calling it RunRev. It's called live code is the app. What's cool about live code is you can build uh, in this environment and it's all it's a very visual programming environment. You can do uh, scripting. And in fact, you can even go out and do um, uh, you can, you know, if you want to use Objective C uh, in it, you can. But uh, but you certainly don't have to. And we didn't uh, at all yesterday. We just sort of built this thing in the interface and, and wired up a little script that said, you know, on mouse up uh, on this button, uh, put, you know, this text into that field. And and that's, you know, what we did with both the buttons. And uh, and, it, and it just works. And you th- and, and you can build for the Mac. And we did. We built an app for the Mac. That's a standalone little app that does the same thing. And then, of course, you can build for iOS. When you build for iOS, you have to use Xcode. You have to have a developer account so that you can get a provisioning profile, you know, assigned so that you can put it on your devices, et cetera, et cetera. And that's actually why we couldn't deploy it that morning. I already had a developer account, already had a provisioning profile, but I had Xcode 4.1 installed on the computer that uh, that we have over at the house. 
And uh, as any developers out there will know, you need Xcode 4.2 to build for iOS 5. So we couldn't that that was the only delay is I had to download Xcode, uh, the update and install it. Uh, and I did that. You know, I let it do that while we were eating breakfast and then he had to get on the bus. But when he came home, it took us about four minutes and we had the thing up and running on uh, on his iPod touch. And then, you know, and then we added the other devices and and off it went. What's really cool about this, and I've, I mean, I've done, you know, bits and pieces of programming over the years, not nearly uh, to the extent that you have, John, but um, but there's you, you certainly have to compile when you are going to build the app for a specific platform. But in the development environment, you don't have to compile. It's a it's a live environment, hence the name live code. So you can you any little change you make is live and you can just instantly, you know, as soon as you change whatever it works right there in the uh, in the environment. So you don't have to compile to test. You can just make a little change and test immediately. And so it allows for this, you know, a very iterative process because you're just constantly tweaking and testing and tweaking and testing and then you're done and then you build it for your platform or platforms of choice. You can build. I think it's I'm going to get this wrong, but I think it's Mac, Windows, Linux, uh, iOS and Android are possible with with live code. So it was pretty cool. And, uh, and my son's now really excited and he's going to do a, uh, they're doing a, a free game Academy, I think in, uh, December and January building a, a game with it. And, uh, and they seem to think that even for my son at, at uh, the ripe old age of 10, uh, he will be able to follow along and, uh, and build a game over the course of whatever it is, six, eight weeks, which is cool. Very nice. I'll yeah. Check it out. Yeah. It, it was really cool. It really, you know, it, it uh, and it's all copacetic with Apple because it's going through Xcode as part of this build process. So it's, um, you know, that you can, the, there are apps in the iOS, you know, or iTunes app store that have been built with this and, and, you know, they're totally copacetic and all that good stuff. So it was cool. It really, uh, it really blew me away. He, the demo that, uh, that Kevin did at Mac tech, I think he had two, he had a five minutes time slot and in two minutes start to finish, he built uh, an iOS app that was, uh, you know, essentially it, it navigated the the schedule of of Mac Tech by pulling in different web pages and he wired up buttons and all that. But yeah, I mean, start to finish, it you know worked. He knew what he was going to do. He was prepared. It wasn't he wasn't just shooting in the dark. But still, the fact that he could do it in two minutes was that was enough to to loop me in. So, you know me and my attention span. Huh? <laughs> all right. Squirrel. <clears throat> All right. So that's, so that's, so that's, uh, that's cool. I assume you've never used live code. No, it sounds very similar. Um, I've dabbled with something, uh, real studio. Okay. It sounds very similar in that it, uh, it, it's a visual development environment. Yep. Um, at this point, I don't believe they let you target, um, I devices. Uh, okay. But I believe you can target Mac windows and I believe Linux. Yep. So, uh, yeah, I'll have to check this out. Cause yeah, I mean, I've I've dove into developing uh, for iDevices using Xcode, and it's uh, certainly not something I would recommend as being the first, <laughs> or so not necessarily the easiest way to develop an app, especially for someone that's never developed before. It can be uh, uh, pretty overwhelming. Yeah, the the interesting thing about Live Code is is you probably already know how to use it, John, because it's very much. Um, to use the term derivative is probably too limiting and inaccurate because of that. But, but uh, very much very similar to hypercard 
So you've got these whole this whole stack model. Of course, it's, it's again, it's way beyond what we could ever have done with HyperCard. But but that's kind of where the the bones of this thing started, and uh, and it's it's fantastic. You know, that, I mean that that was so easy to to build stuff on your Mac because you know I I, I built lots of stuff with HyperCard back in the day. I'm sure you did too. Mm-hmm. So yeah, so cool stuff. I I definitely uh, recommend anyone that's even remotely interested in in programming. Uh, to to check this out because it it like I said I mean it it took us literally ten minutes and we had never used the environment before at all so you know there was a lot of stumbling around but in ten minutes we had a, a working app and then we iterated on it we put a button in to clear the field you know it was like this is awesome so the hardest part by far is that you have to you know go in and inst- well you have to install Xcode obviously but you also have to be signed up for an iOS developer account if you want to build for iOS. If you just want to build for your Mac, you don't need any of that. So it's, um, it, yeah, cool stuff. That kind of blew me away. So I had to tell, I had to tell you guys about it. And I mean, of course, when I say you guys, I mean that in the very, you know, New England sense, which is sort of our version of y'all. It means everybody for anybody that doesn't know. All right. Kev has a uh, different Kevin has a, uh, a question and I'm hoping we can at least shed some light on this. Hi guys, it's Coder Kev from Twitter, and uh, I'm going to play Stump the Geeks today. My dad and I both have 2009 Mac Minis. Mine's early, his is late, but I don't think that makes much difference. Um, We're both experiencing, since we've upgraded to Lion, both uh, 10.7.0, 1, and 2, intermittent Bluetooth problems. And when I mean problem, what I mean is all Bluetooth shuts down. Whether the computer uh, is awake or asleep, it seems to wake up at some point and it remains awake, but it loses all Bluetooth functionality. Now, he has um, the Bluetooth trackpad, the Apple trackpad. I've got a Magic Mouse. The only thing that we have in common is we both have a Mac Alley keyboard. Now, both of these keyboards have worked fine up until Lion. I don't know what the problem is, but I'm hoping maybe you guys can figure it out. It seems like all the Bluetooth functionality just dies. All right, and we'll uh, we'll 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 take it from here. In in his email, he also indicated that he has tried rebuilding, or, uh, resetting the PRAM and the SMC, which is absolutely the right thing to try. Unfortunately, it didn't work for Kev, but um, but but that you know, as we've said recently, if you have something that seems like a wacky hardware problem, start there because a lot of times that can fix it. Um, but that said, uh, y- you know, I, I, um, I think the easy path here, and we'll talk about, you know, several other more generic Bluetooth troubleshooting things to make this yet a, a, a more uh, broad reaching answer. But I, I, I have to point at that keyboard, right? I mean, it, it, you have an excellent opportunity here to test um, 
it, with a control set, right? And you know that the both of you have different Macs. And of course, most of us are not experiencing Bluetooth problems like you are. So it's safe to assume that this shouldn't be happening. And that's a good thing. But, uh, but you, you know, take that keyboard out of the mix on one of the Macs and plug in just a regular uh, keyboard, maybe even just a USB keyboard and see how that goes. Uh, my guess is that that's going to be your problem. But uh, and, and if, if so, contact Mac Alley and see what they think, because they're going to know, you know, re- reality is I don't think Mac Alley builds their own chips. They just probably source them from, you know, somewhere in the world there. And uh, but they, you know, they might know a little more about them and, and be able to tell you, yeah, we, we know of a problem with Lion and we're issuing a patch or, you know, something. I don't know. That, but that, that that's where I would start with your specific problem, Kev, is, you know, go after the obvious and see if that solves it if it does then you know where it is but now we can take it more generic john if you have if you have any thoughts uh, go uh honestly i don't use bluetooth devices too much i do have a magic mouse but uh yeah. don't really use it too often uh i mean a couple of general thoughts whenever you have a problem with a wireless device like this would be maybe to unpair it and repair it oh that's a good yeah i like that yeah and I've actually I've been looking I, I was looking through some discussions here uh, about other people that have had a, a problem. So so you're not alone. It seems a lot of problem have, uh, especially, yeah, when you wake up that uh, the device doesn't isn't seen immediately or isn't seen at all. The console, they, of course. Oh, go ahead. sorry. I was going to say the console. No, you're right. My place. Yeah. Well, that's the thing is that I've seen. Yeah. And, you know, I I see one article here that talks about, yeah, you will see a crash report for something and it'll probably have the word blue in it somewhere. So that may indicate that something is upset on the computer. Uh, Another suggestion I saw is that you could select the device as a favorite. There's a way to favorite something in the Bluetooth uh, system preference. Maybe that'll uh, help nudge it towards a a status that makes it more easily found. Yep. Of course, the other thing is, uh, well, kind of like Wi-Fi. I mean, they did, as far as I know, Bluetooth is on the the same frequency. I'm wondering if it's. I mean, I'm leaning towards it being a problem in the computer and not an environment problem. But right, I mean, there could be something else. So I don't know if again because Wi-Fi at least two point. I think Bluetooth is also on two point four gigs. So you could be having some RF interference. So. Right. Yeah. And, you know, it again, and, I mean, and, and again, we're now in the general part of this discussion for Kev. I, my guess is that's not it, but that is something to consider, you know, and the only reason I don't think it is for Kev is because he and his father are experiencing the same thing um, in what are what presumably are somewhat different environments. But um, yeah, the, you know, the other thing to try is, uh, you know, especially upgrade, knowing that you've upgraded from Snow Leopard to Lion, uh, there have been you know, and we've talked about them on the show and we'll, I'm sure, carve out a little bit of time today to talk about some, you know, lion issues again, because it seems we're all having them. Uh, but but, you know, going in and finding that uh, Bluetooth preferences file and getting rid of it and that, uh, you know, maybe there's something corrupt out there that that was common to, to both of you because you have this same device and perhaps getting rid of the system wide Bluetooth prefs. I think to John's point, repairing would perhaps do that but uh but it is in library preferences not home library preferences but main top of your hard drive library preferences and then it's com.apple.bluetooth with a capital b dot p list uh my advice would be 
quit all your apps, delete that prev file and immediately restart your Mac and then come back in and, and, uh, and repair. I would, I would actually unpair everything first if, if that's possible, uh, which it should be. And then, and then come back in and repair and, and see what, uh, see what it does. But yeah, yeah, that's, um, those are my thoughts and John's thoughts too. I think anything else before we move on to Joe? No, I'm looking in, uh, I think they have advanced, but no, some of the things that I thought were there are gone now. You know, like they had something interference robustness, I think, or that yeah. was more Wi-Fi thing, but I yeah. think, no, the advanced tab is a uh, pretty, pretty light right now. So I don't uh, think, I think we've about yeah. covered it. Okay. Well, you know, the, the one other thing to check again, in a very general sense is batteries, right? Bluetooth devices are by their nature standalone in terms of their own power supply. Uh, and they will get flaky, uh, as, as battery life, you know, gets towards its end. So start with a fresh set of batteries and, and see if that helps a- again. I don't think that's going to work for Kev, but, um, but you know, in a general sense, all right, you know, it brings up I'll a go. good point. Yeah, uh, go. The final point here is uh, last I checked, the thing is, Hmm. Yeah. New set of batteries, or I think you want to avoid, uh, cause last I checked a lot of rechargeable batteries don't deliver quite the oomph that they're, uh, that they're alkaline, alkaline counterparts do. Yes. So I'm wondering if, if you're using, especially if you're using rechargeables, like I think most batteries are one and a half volts, but some of these rechargeables are one and a quarter or something like that. It's, okay. It's been a while, but you may want to, yeah, try a different battery technology. I'm not sure if he's using alkaline or rechargeables. That's, that's a final thought. Yep. Yep. Yeah, definitely. Yeah. It could be that the chipset in that, you know, in that keyboard, doesn't operate as well if it doesn't have full juice and yeah could be all right john are they coming to take you away is that what was there a uh... not this time okay all right good then we're then on we go uh joe writes my entire mailbox structure went south when i clicked on any mailbox i saw nothing as suggested in the help files for apple's mail i clicked on rebuild on a particular mailbox and after a time depending on the number of messages it all appeared the problem is that I have many, many mailboxes. Is there a way to tell mail to rebuild them all one by one? Do their instructions for re-indexing apparently? Uh, um, I'm not sure what he's asking there. So, uh, but, but we do know what he's asking. Uh, he says, finally, I had a bunch of notes and I can't see them all since my mail structure apparently got corrupted and I can't find a way to rebuild the notes. All the notes seem to still be on my iPhone. Yet when I back up my iPhone, they don't appear in mail. Okay, so yeah, there is a way to do this. In fact, there's two ways that I know of to to rebuild mail. Both of them require you to first quit mail, uh, and they both have to do with a folder, a file rather called envelope index, which is a little database file uh, and sometimes not so little stored by mail that keeps track of all of this stuff. All of your mail messages are actually stored as individual files on your Mac. And that makes them searchable by spotlight and also protects you from uh, losing messages when you have database corruption. But when you have database corruption and there is still this database, you lose access to your messages. So you simply have to tell mail to rebuild them. And what Joe's talking about with rebuild is highlighting a mailbox, going to the mailbox menu and choosing rebuild. And that does work. Uh, But as Joe points out, he wants to kind of force mail to rebuild everything. So, uh, and envelope index is stored in one of two places, depending on whether you're using lion or something prior to lion prior to lion. 
It's in your home folder, library, mail folder, and it's right there. And it's called envelope index. Uh, in the in Lion, it moved. It's still in home library mail, but it's a little bit deeper. There's a folder called V2. And then in that folder, there's a folder called mail data. Inside that is where envelope index lives in Lion. Now that we know where it is, we can fix it. The easy way to fix it is, again, make sure you've quit mail. Take the envelope index file, throw it in the trash, relaunch mail. Mail will come up and say, I've got to uh, re-import all of your messages. It's not actually importing them into anything other than this database. Uh, And it'll, depending on how many messages you have, it'll take a little bit of time and then you're good to go. The other way is a little bit smoother, but it requires you to drop out to the terminal. Again, make sure mails quit. And then you go to the terminal and we will post a Mac Geek Gab answers article on this one so that you don't have to remember this. But it uses a command called SQLite 3, S-Q-L-I-T-E 3, and then a space and then the path to the envelope index file, depending on where that is. Uh, and the easiest way is to grab the envelope index file. It's t- type SQLite space. And then here's a trick for anything you're doing in the terminal. If you grab a file from the finder and drag it into your terminal window, the, the your Mac will put the path to that file right there. So you don't even have to worry about how to type it and make sure it's formatted right and all that stuff. It'll put it there. So you type SQLite space, drag the file down, and then you're going to type uh, another space and then vacuum and another space and then index. And so you're telling it to re-index this, this file. Depending on the level of corruption, that can be a far more elegant solution than simply deleting and forcing it to rebuild entirely but uh, but, you know, there you go. That SQLite command also a SQLite three command, I should say, uh, will also allow you to uh, clean up that file and actually make it a lot smaller, which also makes it faster. Uh, if you've been using mail for a very long time, um, people who are running Lion haven't been using mail long enough to need to use that unless you've got a problem, though. So it's you know probably one of those once a year kind of things that's good to do So. So those are my thoughts, John. You said you had a couple. Well, I got a kind of a silly question here. Okay. Um, can't you just select multiple mailboxes in mail and then say rebuild and it'll rebuild them all? I don't believe you can do that in Lion. Can you? <sighs> well, I'm... All right. So, so one thing I'm looking at here. So in my inbox, I have five different items for okay. five different accounts I have. And if I use either option or command click or, you know, click on one and then do a shift click on the last one. It highlights all of them. It does. So if you lead me to believe that rebuild should, I'm not going to do it now because it can take quite a long time as, as they, they suggest. Right. But, and this is in lion. Uh, yes. For some reason I thought I had tested that yesterday, but maybe I missed it. So let me, let me try this because I'll rebuild a couple mailboxes here. It's not a big deal. Uh, and I'm also, not running on the machine that I'm podcasting on. So that helps. So I go to mailbox, highlight two mailboxes. I go to mailbox and rebuild. Actually, I'm going to rebuild mailboxes that are on my Mac because that's going to do it a little bit differently. So mailbox and rebuild. Yeah, sure enough. That works. John Braun, ladies and gentlemen. (laughs) Well, that's just a general, and you know, this works, I mean, in almost any piece of software, though I don't know if we've, we've explicitly stated it, but in a lot of places like the Finder or pretty much any program, it's a convention. If you highlight, if you click on something in a list, 
and then you click on something either I think below or above, and then you use and then you click on shift, it will select everything between. Yep. And I believe to select individual or disjoint items, you can use the clover or apple or command key and, and click on individual items. And again, I like this it works in finder and mail apparently. And I think any program that displays things in a, in a list. Yeah, that's awesome. Now, is it doing it for you? Well, yeah, I, no, I assume it it's it. doing it sequentially. Yes, okay, it did it did it re- it. So it built one, it rebuilt one and then it rebuilt the other. That's oh, correct. Yay. Yep. Okay. Yeah, worked fine. So there you go. Yet another answer. Far more elegant than doing a uh, SQL like vacuum. Uh, and it, yeah, I, I like that option though because it well it lets it you does get a to more. the nitty gritty. <laughs> well, and it also it it also cleans out any unused data from that file, making it smaller. So that you know that that I I remember doing that a lot when Time Machine first came out because that file, of course, is being changed constantly. So that's included with every time machine backup. So, uh, so it is good to, to keep it, you know, under wraps. All right, moving on to Jurgen. Uh, in fact, we answered Jurgen's question in the last podcast about, uh, what router he should use, but we didn't answer the second half of his question. And Jurgen, of course, was so kind as to remind us that we missed the second half of his question, which was, do you have any thoughts on using a router with a firewall instead of turning on the firewall on every computer on the local network? John, I, I think you, you start this one. You go. Well, I'm going to kind of work backwards here. Of course you are. Right? <laughs> well, the thing is, I want to state, because I, I think we've discussed this before. One, one may ask themselves, well, if I have a firewall on my router, why would I need to turn it on on the computer? I think that's that's. That's a fair restatement of Jurgen's question. Sure. And to me, the answer is as follows. So if you're concerned about attacks from outside of your network, then the firewall router will certainly protect you from that. But if you're concerned about attacks from within your network, then I think that's where the Mac firewall comes in. So would it, right? can, can I, can I restate that a, a little bit, a little bit differently? Mm, okay. So uh, I think what you're saying is inbound attacks are able to be protected by your router's firewall. Outbound attacks are protected by your Mac's firewall. Uh, I'm thinking of the scenario. And and you'll see this in in a large enterprise uh, where I've been. And I think you've been, too. But say some person brings an infected uh, USB key, uh, and I've seen this happen in Windows yep. environments. Okay. Well, if they if they insert it inside of the computer, then that's what I'm calling an internal attack, which is the outside firewall has absolutely nothing to do with this. But say sure. someone has a virus on a USB key and they put it in the machine, or it could be malware or whatever. Yep. The thing is, the external firewall, of course, has nothing to do with this, but the firewall on the individual computer could certainly protect against uh, an attack like this. But, but, but okay. So let's talk. Uh, I don't a see, bit. I guess I don't see a downside uh, other than it being uh, tedious. Uh, I don't see a downside to turning on the Mac firewall. I, I have it on just as, as extra protection. Not that I expect anybody on my internal network, 
because it's, it's pretty much me <laughs> or, you know, guests that I have, which I, I, I trust them for the most part, um, aren't going to launch, launch an attack. But, but does the Max Firewall really protect from inbound attacks? Uh, to me, it seems what it does is it protects me from having my apps unknowingly send data out. Okay, because a lot of times you'll see that question come up. Yeah, yeah. Well, so no, I'm asking. No, I'm, it, it, well, no, a lot of times you'll see the question. It says, you know, should I accept incoming connections? Right. Yeah, that's right. But but it's not going to protect me. You know, here here's the thing. If I have my Max firewall on and I have uh, file sharing turned on, my Max firewall is not going to help me at all from someone trying to attack me uh, and and brute force my password on my. Uh, you know, to, to get into my file sharing. You know, that, that, that hole is wide open because you poked it wide open with by turning on file sharing and the firewall doesn't help. Well, all I'll say is what the firewall describes what it does. And I'm looking at it right now. So I'll tell you what it says. The firewall is turned on and set up to prevent unauthorized applications, programs and services from accepting incoming connections. OK, so, but again, that's the purpose of the firewall. Yeah, but I I think it's it its functionality is limited by what you've explicitly allowed. So if for example, mm-hmm. you know, in my home network, I have all my machines with file sharing turned on. Uh if someone brings in a Windows machine that's got some virus that's going to attack my Mac's file sharing, my firewalls aren't going to it doesn't matter whether I have the firewall on. It's just going to beat on them anyway. I I think that's true. I, you know, there's nothing to protect my Mac. There's nothing looking at this and saying, hey, wait a minute. Uh, you know, it's it's not like a, a firewall, like, like uh, you know, a sonic wall or, or, or something where it's it's saying, hey, wait a minute. There's multiple attacks coming from this same machine. We need to shut it down. You know that that the firewall doesn't help there. So it's it, it, in that sense, it's a little misleading. But what it does do is if you happen to get a piece of software on your Mac that's trying to go out to the network and and go get data from somewhere, it asks you about that. It says, hey, wait a minute. There's a piece of software on your Mac that's trying to do something. Do you want to allow this or should we shut this down? So I think the Mac's firewall is very limited in, in the sense of protecting from external attacks, which is which is why I rephrased what you said um, that way. Okay. The other thing I can see it help you with, so there's some options in it, and I don't have these checked. Mm-hmm. Um, but here's the one that I think is is uh, most clever: um, enable stealth mode. Yes, that right. Yep. Now that that's th- handy. What that will do is <clears throat> some people that may want to uh, profile your network may do something like very something very simple, like a ping. And uh, that will uh, normally your computer will respond to that saying, yep, I'm here. Yep. Uh, stealth mode will make it so that your your Mac uh, or any machine that has this stealth mode will make it so that it doesn't respond to that. Now, that could cause problems, uh, especially with network management software where they may expect this to work. But, um, but other, could, otherwise, that's good, because it uh, if your computer doesn't respond to a ping, then an attacker may not know that your computer's even there if that's what they're using to find out what's on the network. Right. Yes. Yeah. Okay. So it may make you a less attractive target because, of course, you won't respond to uh, right a, a ping. And then there's another setting I see here, which I don't know if I would necessarily turn this on, though, if you're ultra paranoid or, or if it's policy, but it says block all incoming connections. 
which blocks them. Uh, oh, now that would what they call uh, basic internet services. Ah, okay. So that's the way to protect your file sharing and all of that stuff. But that's it's an that's a very binary thing, right? It's all or nothing. Uh, I haven't looked at it in a while. I'm sure okay. we can find an article that goes into more detail. Yeah, I'm hesitant says, to yeah, turn that blocks, on right now because yes, well, yeah, the, <laughs> <laughs> we we do that. Though we though we work very hard to get the sound quality as good as we possibly can. John and I are in two different locations and using Skype. So if we were either one of us were to block incoming connections, uh, no one knows what might happen. But I have an idea, and it might mean that we lose you. <laughs> That's not right. desirable. Cool. All right. So so let's now that we've talked about all this theory and and all this crazy stuff, let's bring it back down to earth and and you know wrap it up with a very concise answer. So uh, I don't run firewalls on the Macs on my internal network. I do run them. I do run it when I am out and about with my laptop, uh, though. After this conversation, I'm not exactly sure that it's doing me any good. Uh, and uh, and I do let my routers default firewall stay on. So that's that's what I do. And I think John turns all of his firewalls on. Based on yes. what you just said. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I just don't want to think about it. And I haven't found a reason to turn it off. So, yeah, you, you're probably right. There's probably no good reason to turn it off. Now, what I like your thinking is that, yeah, especially if you're on a foreign network, that then it's probably a good thing to have on. I Again, I don't think about it. I just always have it on. Yeah. Yeah. All right. Uh, let's see. Uh, what, what are we doing here? Okay. So uh, Larry has an interesting question. Larry writes, Occasionally, I will come home to my Mac Pro, which I had to put to sleep, and it will be humming with a black screen. It won't wake up with a mouse nudge or a keyboard tap. I have to power the whole thing off and on, which is heartbreaking when I don't know what unfinished things I had on my computer before putting it to sleep. Please give me a better solution than Apple's stock. Unplug everything and try them one by one until the problem repeats. Since it's an intermittent problem, this could take months. Uh, I have the typical spaghetti mess of drives, mouse, printer, scanner, microphone, and other accessories. Okay, so this is uh, one of those things where we could go forever and ever and ever and talk about this. And and we might go a little while. Uh, the first thing I would do is I would look in the console as soon as the computer reboots. Obviously, well, in the current scenario, you can't look at the console while the Mac is frozen or at least unresponsive. Uh, but if you look at it when it reboots, uh, if, and you look at all messages, you can scroll up and keep an eye on the timestamps. You'll, you know, you'll see a timestamp of when you rebooted and then there'll be a whole long list of things. So keep scrolling up until you see that gap that goes back to, you know, whenever the machine locked up and see what appears in the console just before the reboot. There might be something there that gives you some indication as to what, is going on and it could be one of your external devices usb can cause this uh you know we talked at the beginning of the show about bluetooth doing something not exactly the same but similar you know so so take a look at the console it really is a very helpful place because everything most everything logs here and it, it really is you know all in one it is a lot of data sometimes but but that's that's the first place i would check um and, and then, of course, like we mentioned for uh, for Kev's question, reset PRAM and SMC on your Mac. We'll, we'll put a link in the show notes as to uh, how to reset SMC because it's slightly different for every Mac. 
but PRAM is the same for everybody. Restart your Mac. And as soon as you uh, hear the chime or actually even before you can hold down command option PR, hold it down until you hear the chime twice and then let it go. I know some people say three times because you know, that's their religion. (sighs) One time. Well, you want to hear it twice so that you get the, the, so that you're sure that you got it and you're not just hearing, well, and you're not just hearing the normal startup chime, right? You want to get that second one so that, you know, okay, yep. PRAM was reset, but then you're good to go. So that's, that's my start on this. I can go into a little bit about remote access and perhaps seeing what's going on with the machine while it's crashed. Um, do you have anything to, to add before we, before we kind of go to layer number two here, John? Yes. And the, the console uh, will log uh, on behalf of the kernel, but will log uh, wake issues. And I'm looking right now. So I see a couple of messages here, system wake, wake reason. And I speculate that if the machine is not waking, then you may get a message that tells you why it doesn't think it should. So, you know, bring up the console and then type wake in the filter field and, and you'll get messages related to that. So kind of uh, to help refine what you what you were saying. Yeah, no, that's that's actually really smart. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. Yeah, that's right. Because the filter can really help you kind of narrow things down in the in the console. Obviously, it limits you from seeing everything else, but that's sort of the point. All right. So so then, you know, what, what I like to do is um, if I have another Mac on the network, uh on all my Macs, the first one of the first things I do is I go into uh, system preferences and sharing. And I click the box next to enable remote login. What this does is it turns on what's called the SSH or the secure shell server on your Mac. And this allows you to get to the terminal of one Mac from another computer. And once you turn this on, uh, you'll see in that same pane, it'll say remote login on. And then below that, it'll give you a command that you would need to type to connect to another Mac. And it might be, you know, in Larry's case, it might be, you know, SSH space Larry at 192.168.1.1 or, you know, whatever it's whatever your IP is and whatever your login name is. Uh, You can go into the terminal on another Mac, type that exactly. And now you're going to have to jot this down ahead of time because, of course, your machine is crashing. But uh, but if you do have another Mac or even an iOS device, you can uh, you don't have a terminal per se on the on iOS, or at least you're not allowed to get to it. But you can use an app. I like one called uh, I'm going to look it up right here. It's called ISSH. And that uh, that one lets me do this, too. And then you just type your you type this command and then it'll ask you for your it'll ask you to approve the SSH key. The first time you do it, say yes. And then it'll ask you for your password. And now you're at the terminal on that Mac. And you can see the console log from here. Uh, my favorite way and the easiest way of doing that is to use a command called D message, but you're going to have to type sudo D message, S U D O space D message. And we're going to do a Mac Geekab answers article on this one too. If it's not already up, uh, Jim's been doing a fantastic job at those. Everybody big round of applause for Jim because these articles weren't getting out before we brought them on and we're glad to have them. Uh, but you can type sudo space D message, S-U-D-O space D message. And, uh, and that'll show you um, some of the, I guess the, the kernel log is, uh, is what that shows you. And, and you might see some things out here that indicate what's going on with that computer. The other thing, if you're able to get connected this way, there is another command, and we've talked about this before. But 
if you're stuck and you need to restart the machine, you know, turning it off and then turning it back on is always a dangerous process because you don't know if you're going to screw something up. Um, it's possible you might get a drive in a state where, you know, files haven't been written right and you cause some corruption, et cetera, et cetera. It is sometimes necessary, but it is a last resort option. So if I can get to the command line using this remote login, I type sudo space shutdown space dash R space now. And that goes through and the dash R uh, means don't actually shut down, but restart instead. And yes, there are lots of other permutations of this. This is the one I use and it works for me. So I keep using it, but, um, but that, you know, that, that will, it, you'll still, it'll still force quit your apps. So you're going to lose any data you didn't save, but your Mac itself will be restarted in a very um, friendly way. Uh, and that's a good thing. All services will be shut down, et cetera, et cetera. So, so that's that. This will all be in a, Geek Gab Answers article too, as I said. So, any thoughts on the the second layer there, John? Mm, no. Okay. No, I hate when this happens. <laughs> it sounds like we've made you sad with Larry's question, John. No, I'm just trying to think back when I've had this happen, and I haven't. Really? You know, I did. Uh, no, I actually I did have this problem one time. No, it's kind of from left field. No, it was actually a wake problem on my MacBook Pro, but this was okay. not under Lion. Yep. And actually, the problem was if you had multiple network interfaces enabled, sometimes it would get confused and not uh -huh. wake up. So I think they, they patched that. So <clears throat> well, kind of a long shot. He didn't say what OS he was on, or at least I didn't have that mm. part of his message here. So it's possible that he's on a prior version of the OS. I doubt it. Or if he is, he's, I'm sure I'm, I'm my guessing he's up to date because most folks that listen to this show keep at least their, um, their software updates installed, but anything is possible. So yeah, making sure software updates run, but you know, all that good stuff. All right. Uh, well, but you mentioned Lion, so let's go to Scout and uh, and see what Scout has to say, and then and then we'll uh, we'll we'll, we'll kind of stay in in the deep end of the pool here for Scout's question, and then we'll uh, then we've got some quick stuff to go through after this, and uh, and we promise that it'll be a little more bite sized, but it's good to go into the deep end every now and then. Hey guys, this is Scout from Seattle again. I'm calling to get your advice on Mac OS Vista. I mean, the uh, Lion. <laughs> I upgraded two machines about three weeks ago, and Lion seems to have aged them about six years. These are newer machines, but sometimes they just work so dog slow that it, it can take up to 30 seconds to switch between tabs or switch between applications. Even sending an email with a very small attachment takes forever. Using menu meters, and now I have Activity Monitor open all the time, uh, I have some observations. It doesn't seem to be CPU-related. There's no one process that really seems to be spiking all the time, although Carbonite chews up a lot of uh, CPU. does not seem to be RAM issue although i'm running stock ram on both machines and lion seems greedier uh with ram than snow leopard i still have uh some free ram available but it's got me closing apps more frequently now and thinking about ram upgrades but the thing that i noticed the most is a lot of disk chatter 
uh, from both of these machines. And when the performance is really poor, there's a lot of disc chattering going on. Looking at the activity monitor, I'm always seeing the uh, common culprits being MDS, MD Worker, uh, Disk Images Helper, Backup D, Kernel Task. They don't have a lot of CPU. Uh, but they seem to be doing a lot of disk activity, which is slowing these down. These are stock spindle drives. Also, uh, after I restart each computer, they seem to be real quiet for a time, uh, but then they'll start indexing again. I'm wondering what you're thinking. Uh, I At first, I'm thinking that there's too many disk activities going on, like it's too much to expect to have iCloud and DotMaxing and Carbonite and Time Machine all running at the same time. But with the exception of iCloud, I had all those running on Snow Leopard just fine. Uh, maybe if my disks are fragged, I don't know, or there's a problem with my Spotlight index. When I have the laptop home from the office where it connects wirelessly to a time capsule, I don't have these performance problems and MD Worker doesn't seem to be going all the time. Uh, do I need to do some cleaning with Onyx? Do I need to repair the, uh, inst the installations or do I need to do fresh installs? I look forward to hearing from you and if you don't want to hear the details of the machines, you can stop me here. Okay. I think we've got uh, enough. Thank you, Scout. Um, and, and then there was a follow-up email, but but I think we'll start here. So you mentioned that the processes that are constantly running are MDS, MD Worker, Disk Images, Helper, and Backup D. Uh, the latter two are definitely a part of Time Machine. Backup D is the process that does the backups, and Disk Images Helper, if you are backing up over a network, is part of that process. But it shouldn't be... Uh, constantly running and and that may in, and that may indicate that there's something perhaps corrupt or or not quite right about about time machine now mds and md worker are spotlight related uh they build and maintain spotlights index but spotlights used for a lot of things including uh in a sense part of part of your backups as well uh but you also mentioned you run carbonite so Here's here's something that I learned. I use Backblaze. I tested all of them out, as as listeners know. Um, I don't know what six months ago or something, but uh, I had a problem at one point. I wiped out my exclusions list from Spotlight and also from Time Machine, and it. I had a similar problem where you know MDS and MD Worker were constantly spiking, and what I realized was happening was that. Uh, uh, Backblaze, which was my online backup uh, software of choice, is storing data in a folder somewhere on my Mac. And and that's just part of the way it runs so that it knows when it's time to do a backup, what it has to go and do. And it, you know, it makes its process more efficient uh, when it's using the network connection. But I was indexing that with Spotlight and backing it up with Time Machine. And it was causing all kinds of problems like this. And so what I did was I, I figured this out and we'll talk about how I figured it out. But uh, once I figured it out, I excluded those folders from from Spotlight and Time Machine, which is how they should have been and how they were initially until I screwed something up or something happened and I lost those. And then things got a lot better. So if you are, in fact, having disk activity problems, try excluding any folders that Carbonite might be using as temp files or or cache files and uh, 
and perhaps look on Carbonite's forums or, or contact Carbonite support to see what should be omitted both from Time Machine and from Spotlight. That might help you a lot. And this might not be a Lion issue at all, except that with Lion, the installers for something like Carbonite or Backblaze can't go in and, and muck with those preferences without, uh, without user intervention. So it's, you know, so you're, you're kind of in this catch 22, but, um, but that, that's an interesting thing. Uh, what's one thing that's interesting is MD worker, uh, is the one that will constantly spike when it's indexing and indexing, but it runs as root, which means that, um, some handy in activity monitor. I told you we were going to get geeky here and, and we are, uh, if you double click on an app in activity monitor, you usually get three tabs, John, right? You get memory, you get statistics, which is the one that it opens on. And then the third one is open files and ports. And this open files and ports list is live, meaning as an app is accessing different files on your Mac, they will appear and be removed from this list. And so you can easily tell what if MD worker is constantly spiking, if you can get this open and it's a trick, uh, but if you, if you get to this open files and ports, you can see what's appearing here and that'll allow you to say, Oh yeah, I don't need spotlight indexing that. And it might solve all your problems. Uh, but the trick is because MD worker runs its root, the open files and ports tab is missing an activity monitor. And that sucks, but there's a trick. You have to use the terminal. Uh, if you go to the terminal and I'm going to try this because I did not prep this. So if you go to the terminal and you type, the trick is you have to run activity monitor as root, uh, in order to see the open files and ports from root. So if you go to the terminal and you type sudo space, and then let's try the trick we talked about early in the show and drag activity monitor in, that'll do it. I think so we hit return. It asked me for my password. No, it doesn't work. So uh, the issue here uh, is that applications are bundles and they're folders. And when you drag it in, the system's not smart enough to point you all the way in. So but it's a good start. So type sudo space, drag in activity monitor, and that'll autofill the terminal with applications, utilities, activity slash space monitor dot app. Then put a slash at the end, type contents with a capital C type Mac OS with a capital M O N S. And then I believe it's called, uh, let's find out what it's called. Uh, activity monitor D is that right? No, that was bad. I shouldn't have run that. Who knows what I just did, John? Uh, do you know what it is, John? No. Okay, great. Mr. Braun. Utilities, activity monitor, contents, Mac OS. It is called activity space monitor with a capital A and a capital M. So that's the trick is you got to do activity space monitor and you need to put a slash before the space because that's how it works. And then it will run this app as root. And then you can go in and you can see that open files and ports geeky, but man ever ever so helpful uh, because now you get to see what's going on there and it almost instantly will tell you what's going on. And, uh, and that can be really, really helpful in diagnosing, you know, these weird disc usage problems. So there you go. Told you we were going to get geeky, John. Any mm. other, th any other thoughts on scout here? 
I mean, we can talk, you know, we could Onyx, use this. Uh, it, yeah. it sounds like there may be something with the spotlight index. So Good. there are a couple of ways to clean that up, either Onyx, maintenance, rebuild, spotlight mm-hmm. index. Or I think the easy way to do it through the Mac interface is to just drag a disk <clears throat> in the exclusion and then pull it out. And I think that'll also force a rebuild. Be careful of that should work. I agree with you, actually. And and I also agree that rebuilding the spotlight index is probably the first thing you should do before doing all my crazy stuff here. Um, that, that That's actually a really good idea. Uh, but when you drag a disk into spotlights exclusions list, sometimes quit system preferences, come back in and make sure it's still there. I've seen sometimes where it doesn't it doesn't stick right. But but yeah, in in a general sense, that works. Uh, the other thing that was mentioned is, uh, you know, grab something like time machine editor because, uh, yeah, I mean, that can really drag the system down. I I don't like backing up every hour. I do every four hours, I think. Oh yeah. That's a good point. Yep. Yep. Especially with spindle drives. I've noticed on my SSD machines, I, I haven't gotten to the point where I want to run time machine editor and, and change them because I, I don't, I honestly don't notice when it's running. Makes a big difference on spindle drives for sure. Uh, what else? Uh, also in Onyx under maintenance is probably the best place. Uh, make sure all the scripts are being run. There's no cruft building up. Mm-hmm. And actually you can you can execute. Yeah, there's a daily, weekly, and a monthly uh, maintenance script that should always run. And actually, yeah, I've seen them run on a regular basis on my machine. So, Yeah, that's good. That's good. So there you go. We'll uh, we'll we'll refrain from going into a deep troubleshooting of Lion because we'll do that again sometime. But uh, but there you go. That's that's uh, that's our tip for the day. That's a good one. So uh, uh, I don't I don't know if I sent that to Jim as a Mac, Mac Keycap answers to do. But Jim is so good that he'll pick up stuff that we talk about in the show and build a Mac Keycap answers out of it, even if I haven't thought of it. So another yet another round of applause for Jim. Well, we go on to. Peer, peer writes, I, I have a relatively simple question this time. I have a MacBook Pro in my home office with an external uh, RAID drive where a RAID where all my aperture data resides. I would like to show some pictures on my Mac mini, which is connected to my TV in my living room, both on the same network. Of course, the mini has AirPlay server, so I could show them from my iPad to the mini. But how do I show them from my other Mac to the mini? How do I beam it over in a sense? John, you're our aperture guy. So I look to you, even though this might not be solved with aperture. <laughs> or maybe it um, is. I'll have a couple of, I think, simple ways to do this. Simple uh, is good. We promised them simple. Well, one would be install aperture on the mini. Okay. And select the library when you launch aperture. If you hold down, is it? Command, oh. I believe it's command, and that l- lets you select a library. So, so just mount it over file sharing. You mean, and uh, from the RAID? That's one thought. The other is you could remote in from the mini, do a screen share session, run the slideshow on the remote machine, and I would think that would work as well. Yeah, the pictures aren't going to look as good that way. Uh, probably not. I've heard sometimes they get downsampled. So. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And the other thing now, I don't think this is a thing with that. Aperture has the ability to run on a remote, a connected screen, as far as I can tell. Okay. If you go to, yeah, Aperture, uh, Preferences, Appearance, yeah, View Slideshows on Main Display and Secondary Display. But again, I think that's uh, that's only displays that are connected to the machine itself and not a, not a remote display. 
Ah, okay. Yep. 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 And so, so the, my real question is, is there, is there any way, I mean, it, because he's, he makes a good point, right? We can, with airplay, I can take something that's on my iPad and just redirect the output to, you know, my Apple TV, or if you, if you're running the airplay server on your Mac mini, then th- you can do it that way too. So, which begs the question, why can't I do that from a Mac? You know, is there any way, and, and perhaps this is a little bit of a geek challenge, because it seems so darn simple. If I can do it from my iPad, why can't I do it from my uh, from my Mac, which is, you know, far more powerful and far more, uh, far easier to program, far less mm-hmm. limited, I should say. Any, so that that's that's my question to all of you on behalf of uh, Peer. Because that would be that would be handy. And while we uh, while we wait for an answer there, we'll go to Gene. Gene says, uh, I've been catching up on my Mac Geek Abs and I was listening to the show today where you talked about full screen mode in Lion and how the second monitor behaved. Uh, as it turns out, the gray linen that shows up on the second monitor does not mean that you can't use it. You can drag any of the full screen apps windows over there. For example, in mail, you could have mail up and have the activity window and connection doctors sitting over there with busy Cal. You could have the address viewer or any of the little panes over there. So the second monitor does not become fully useless in full screen mode. And I had no idea. And I tried it this morning and sure enough, yep, you can drag stuff right over and it, you know, builds this whole little custom thing. It just, Apps themselves are not written to, uh, at least not yet, written to, to, you know, make use of that kind of in a in an automatic sense. It would be great to have two apps in full screen mode, and that I think would require the OS to do. And perhaps we'll see that someday, but maybe not. This is one of those times when it feels like Apple has not thought ahead. You know, so many times I try to do something uh, on my Mac. You know, you know what I mean, John. And and then suddenly you're like, oh hey, cool, this works. Somebody at Apple thought of it. And this is like, oh, uh, how come nobody thought of this? So, but it is good that at least you can drag stuff over there. So, Gene, thanks. I had no idea. And my guess is no one else did either. Um, time for cool stuff found, or is there is there anything left in our uh, in our question queue that you want to go through here, John? No. No. All right. Well, off to uh, off to cool stuff found we go then. Uh, Jeff has a couple that I really like. Number one, unfortunately doesn't work on lion, but it's called startup sound. I think we've talked about this a couple times before, but it is worth putting out there. Uh, it lets you control the startup chime and they are apparently working on lion support, I think, but, uh, but it's not out, but certainly in snow leopard and before you can control all sorts of things about the startup sound. And then number two is one called preference cleaner. Uh, and it's uh, from, well, we'll put the link in the show notes, but it allows you to go through and, uh, and clean out preferences uh, from various different apps. So probably really helpful for those of you that are following along and troubleshooting your Macs while we do the show here. Preference Cleaner will allow you to pull some of those prefs out uh, without having to go in the terminal or dig around in the finder and all of that good stuff. So I like that one. Preference Cleaner. Good. Something cool showed up yesterday, John. I'm sure we're going to talk about it more after I've had time to play with it. But uh, but you know me and all my gadgets. So the Kindle Fire showed up yesterday afternoon. And I had the chance to use it uh, last night a little bit. 
And, uh, and I haven't done a whole lot on it. I've surfed the web, which seems to work fine. I've set up my email, which is limited, but fine. And I've watched a little bit of a movie on it, which was actually pretty cool. The screen is, I found it great. I saw some people complaining about the specs of it when it was announced, but, uh, I found watching a movie on it was great. And, uh, and reading on it, you know, it, it's, it, it's clear. We used to have all these devices that didn't really work all that well. Um, you know, the, the portable devices. And then once Apple came out with the iPhone and the iPad, they sort of inspired everybody to at least try and get better. And the Kindle is, I find reading on it, the Kindle fire better than the iPad simply because of the size. I can hold this Kindle fire in one hand. It's much lighter than the iPad and uh, really comfortable to read on. Um, so comfortable that I fell asleep last night reading with it. But, uh, but you know, that's okay. Um, but I, I really liked it for, for reading. It's, it, it is really comfortable in one hand. It's got, um, the, the back of it is, um, it's almost like a, it's a plasticky or almost a rubbery finish that, uh, that just makes it really easy to grip that. Uh, so there you go. That's uh that's my quick review of the, or my quick thoughts about the Kindle Fire as I'm getting into it for for my first day. Huh. And how I, much was this? Was it two hundred bucks or something? Two hundred bucks. Or? Yeah, yeah. Oh, two hundred bucks. All right. Yeah. It's got I think eight gigs of RAM in it, so or eight gigs of storage rather, so you can put, um, uh, you know, uh, movies or whatever, and it runs Android, so you can put apps on it and all of that. My my lone complaint, uh, it's cool that they've put uh, a, there's only one button on it, but the button is on what they orient as the bottom of the device. Uh, so the bottom has uh, the button, the charger port, and a headphone jack. And then the top has two uh, stereo speakers. And most apps will work if you just, you know, spin the device around. But like the, the, the unlock screen and all of that is certainly oriented with the, with the button down. And I found when I was reading... Uh, you know, if I kind of moved, if I had the thing resting on something, I was constantly hitting the button while I was, uh, while I was reading, it's just a little, you know, plunger kind of button. So that, that sort of drove me crazy, but, uh, but otherwise, you know, it's all right. I'm, I'm certain I'll use it on our uh, vacation and on the plane and all that really it's, you know, obviously much smaller. It's, uh, it's like a large cell phone in size or a large iPhone, I should say a large smartphone. Uh, whereas, you know, the iPad is like a small computer screen. This is a large, you know, cell phone screen. So it's a uh, way easier to hold in one hand and, and all that stuff. So cool. Any, any questions on it or anything, John? I'm sure you'll come up with something eventually. No, I'm, I'm happy with my current complimented devices. Of course you are. That's how, that's how you roll. All right. Well, thanks for uh, joining us this morning. We did do this in the morning today, which is a nice little departure. In fact, that's the second show we've done this month in the morning. First was while I was at Mac Tech. Second was this one. Yep. This time it's my fault. But that's good. I don't. Off I, I to like yet doing another morning. media event in Manhattan. You're going to the Pepcom event, you said, right? What do they call it? Wine, Dine, and Demo. I'm sure you'll yeah. have some cool stuff found to talk about there when we come back on Monday, right? I, I certainly hope so. <laughs> yeah, nice little events. You should come down for some of these. There's a, the, between them and the, the, there's like three different groups that regularly hold, uh, you know, these kind of small, uh, you know, certainly smaller than Macworld, uh, small kind of focused uh, media events. Yeah. 
cool. And they, they feed you and they, they usually give you, you know, some drink too, which is nice. And some demo. And so in this case, yes. And, and then the, the various vendors uh, showing their latest wares. Cool. All right. Well, for those of you that want to contact us, questions, tips, comments, anything else, it is premium at MacGeekGab.com because all of you are premium members and we really appreciate that. I hope so. Yeah. And just to make sure, just I don't know if you got it right there, Dave, but I, I, I think it's premium at MacGeekGab.com. Premium at MacGeekGab.com. You can also call us at 206-666-GEEK, which John is... Oh, uh, four, three, three, five. You, you don't have that memorized after six years? Yeah, of course I do. But, okay. Uh, yeah, I'm just wondering if that's uh, if that's what, what everybody uh, maps those letters to. I'm not sure. I think it's just the U.S. thing. Not that many people. <laughs> well, we so we like it just because, yeah, I mean, we were so lucky that we were able to get that number. Yeah, it's great. And you can also visit MacGeekGab.com for the show notes. You can Skype to MacGeekGab. And if you visit Facebook.com slash MacGeekGab, you'll find us there, too. And you know where else you're going to find us, Dave? Where can I find us? On Twitter. So I am John F. Braun. You are Dave Hamilton. Pilot Pete is Pilot Pete. The podcast is MacGeekGab and MacObserver is MacObserver. That'll work. We would also like to thank Michael Johnston, uh, who is Michael Johnston on Twitter. He's the host of the iPhone, uh, sorry, of the We Have Communicators podcast. Used to be called the iPhone Alley podcast. Michael uh, converts this to AAC for all of us and all of you, and we'd like to thank him for that. And, of course, CashFly.com, C-A-C-H-E-F-L-Y for all the bandwidth. We will be back on Monday with one last show to round out this month, pre-Thanksgiving. So we'll see you on Monday, and between now and then, have fun, but don't get caught. <laughs> 